In Discussion with David Gibbons is sponsored in part by Bowman Global Change. Specializing in helping companies reduce their carbon emissions, Bowman Global Change applies real science to real business practices to produce results. From designing green programs to one-on-one training to helping set up green action teams in your business, Bowman Global Change translates complex science in practical ways that everyone can understand and use. For more information or to discover how Bowman Global Change can help your organization, visit bowmanglobalchange.com. Ian Crane joins me on In Discussion. An ex-oil field executive, he lectures and writes on the geopolitical webs that are being spun, with particular focus on US hegemony and the NWO agenda for control of global resources. Since 2007, he's focused his efforts on raising public awareness of the pernicious attack on the global population in the name of corporate globalization and harmonization, with particular focus on the excesses of Codex Alimentarius. He's also an independent researcher, and his views are expressed in the talks and DVDs that are based entirely upon his personal knowledge and research. Prior to his retirement from the corporate arena, he enjoyed a career of some 25 years in telecommunications and international oil field services, a career that provided the opportunity to live and work in the United Kingdom, continental Europe, the Middle East, and also the United States. Ian Crane. Welcome today to In Discussion, and I'm very pleased to invite back to the program Ian Crane. Thanks, good to talk to you again. And you, it's a great pleasure. Following on from our last program, I think that we would love to talk about uh, the concerns around generic seeds and the impact upon uh, society as a whole. How do you see this developing over the next two or three years, it's clearly a very contentious issue and we're seeing a lot of activity now, particularly in North America, citing the FDA, Monsanto and other groups as breaking down culture, breaking down the agricultural system and cultures with it. How do you see this manifesting itself now? Well, David, I think we've actually got to uh, take a pace back because... It's actually a lot further down the road than the vast majority of people realize. And the great tragedy is that there's been a number of people trying to, if you like, wake up the uh, the public to what's been occurring for a long time and really beating their head up against the proverbial brick wall. But, you know, just maybe, just maybe, now that we're starting to see the real manifestation of this uh, this agenda... And, I mean, primarily to encapsulate it, it comes back to Henry Kissinger's classic statement where he made the observation that if you control money, you control the world, control oil and you control nations, control the food and you control the people. That is primarily the agenda here. And um, to put it in perspective, I mean, it goes back a long way, but uh, you know, we'll, if we just start looking at what's been occurring over, say, the last 50-odd years, in fact, less than 50 years, and we can actually identify the moment that kicked off this current campaign to uh, effectively control the food, and that's the 
uh, establishment of the Codex Alimentarius Commission, which was established under the auspices of the, the World Trade Organization, which, of course, is one of the, the two henchmen of the, um, the World Bank. We have the World Trade Organization, which, as I think many people are beginning to realize, has very little at all to do with trade, but more about monopoly. And we have the World Health Organization, which is, is a total misnomer because, you know, there's no money in health. So, uh, you know, it really should be properly named the World Sickness Organization because that's exactly what it is promoting on a, on a global basis. And what we have here is a, a two-pronged attack on humanity. We'll trace it back, but it's Big Pharma, both with an F, i.e. the biotech industry, and Big Pharma with a PH, which is the pharmaceutical industry. And the two work hand in glove because, you know, what we see happening is as the quality of our food is deteriorated at a phenomenal rate of knots, obviously so is our health because we're eating food that is effectively no longer nutritional. It certainly doesn't contain the, uh, the minerals or the vitamins that uh, the body needs. So, therefore, we start to, uh, to lose our natural immunities so we get sick, and who rides on to the stage on, you know, on the big white charger? The pharmaceutical industry. And this is you know, very topical right now in Europe because we are literally less than five months away from May the 1st when a significant chunk of herbal remedies will become illegal in Europe. So, you know, herbal medicines which have been around for potentially millennia will no longer be available over the counter in Europe. And this this is as a direct result of the uh, the double-pronged attack, the pharmaceutical industry and the biotech industry effectively was he trying to destroy all natural farming and completely annihilate the complementary and alternative healthcare industry. If that did have a impact on herbal medications, holistic practices, whether they're both in the European Union and the United States, is it far-reaching there that they could be affected by this as well? Oh, most definitely. I mean, absolutely. I mean, make no bones about it, David. The goal here is literally to abolish all natural farming. And, of course, the campaign to wipe out the, uh, the family farmer has certainly been going on since 1974 in the United States. And it's far more advanced in the United States than it is uh, in Europe. But, um, you know, these guys, you know, they, they have a very long game. It's a very uh, determined agenda, and they don't really care whether it takes uh, you know, five years, 10 years, 50 years, 100 years, but as long as everyone's sort of working towards their ultimate goal. But absolutely, it will uh, impact on practitioners. I mean, in the short term, in Europe, it's going to mean that uh, many of the herbal medicines will only be available via prescription. And prescriptions can only be written by allopathic doctors. So consequently, the reality is that unless a natural health practitioner has actually qualified as, in the States, an MD, here a, a GP, a general practitioner, 
Um, but unless they've actually got that qualification, then they will not be able to prescribe their remedies for their, their patients or their clients. So the, there's absolutely no doubt that, that this is going to have a dramatic impact. And the great tragedy is that uh, I, along with a number of other people, have been trying to raise awareness of this for a number of years. And I've been working very closely with a guy called Scott Tips, who's the president of the National Health Federation, which is a US-based organization, in trying to raise awareness of this amongst the healthcare practitioner groups, natural healthcare practitioner groups, that is, in the UK and in Europe. And to be frank, it's been... Well, it's been almost impossible. I mean, what we have found is basically these people have their heads buried in the sand. Um, but now that it is uh, potentially a reality, all of a sudden, of course, there's, there's a bit of panic and not too surprisingly. In my work, Ian, I always draw a line in the sand and in many of the issues, I always find myself at the end of the Second World War as really being the catalyst to the evolutionary yep. process that I have no doubt that we're traveling through. You talked about this period of 50 years. 50 years ago, we did not have 7 billion people in the world. And if you look at many of these companies, including Monsanto, their mission statement or their vision suggests that they are meeting the demand of a huge population in the world. They are catering for that. You're saying, however, that this really began 50 years ago when there wasn't that population that they needed to feed. How did this begin to emerge so long ago to the point now where certainly there are seven billion people in the world and there is a huge shortage of food which i am sure is really not a reality in actual fact if cultures could return or move forward to better farming practices and being closer to the soil they could indeed create better food chains than we have now but what is that history that you see that took place well, it, I mean, you're absolutely right to identify it as uh, something that emerged from the Second World War, because if we look at the, um, uh, and, and I have to say that the, the, the whole issue here, the pharmaceutical industry and the biotech industry is inextricably interlinked. I mean, it, it is a symbiotic relationship between the two, and, and we can trace the, uh, the origins back to effectively the same players. And, and we'll go back to IG Farben, and of course IG Farben, was the um, industrial complex of Germany. Very, very powerful company, major sponsor of National Socialism. One of the uh, significant investors into IG Farben was a certain uh, Prescott Bush, who may be familiar to some of your listeners. In fact, he had a uh, significant chunk of his personal wealth sequestered, I think it was in 1942, because of his investments in national socialist um, industries, uh, including IG Farben. Now, at the end of the war, um, 15 senior executives of IG Farben were tried at Nuremberg as war criminals. What a lot of people don't realize is that Auschwitz is renowned, obviously, as a concentration camp. But it wasn't primarily a concentration camp. It was primarily a work camp for IG Farben. And obviously they treated the, <laughs> the inmates as uh, slave labor. And of course also conducted experiments on them as well, as, as is well documented. So that is why 15 of the senior executives were tried at Nuremberg. And all of them were sentenced to, uh, to jail terms. 
all of them served very short jail terms. And within 10 years, three of them were heading up three of the four companies that had spun out of IG Farben. And the, and the companies that had spun out were Bayer, that's B-A-Y-E-R, uh, B-A-S-F, Herxt, and one other, which escapes me for a second. But these were the four pharmaceutical companies that were effectively the spin-off of, of IG Farben. Now, there was a whole bunch of scientists working for IG Farben. On, and, and these, when I say scientists, these weren't rocket scientists. These were medical scientists, pharmaceutical scientists. And many of these people were spirited away at the end of the Second World War over to the United States under Operation Paperclip. And in fact, many of those people who were working at IG Farben were effectively introduced into the United States biochemical research organizations, some of whom ended up actually on um, Plum Island, which is a facility that uh, some of your listeners may be familiar with. It's an, it's an island off, just off the northeastern tip of Long Island where there's some pretty horrendous um, uh, biotech research been undertaken. And I would encourage people to actually uh, Google the Plum Island uh, bio-research and uh, see what they come up with. In context, because Auschwitz and that period, to this day, a very emotional topic. Clearly, the pinnacle of genocide and what you're charting here is a direct connection between the individuals who were involved in that situation that, like many scientists across the board, uh, all the way through to quantum physics, actually came from Germany to the United States after the war. The model that you see today, what we're talking about here, are you putting this into a context and connecting the outcome of what they were looking for back then with what is being aspired to today? Without any shadow of doubt, and Zbigniew Brzezinski, of course, uh, spelled it out in his book, Between Two Ages, The Technotronic Era, which he wrote in 69, published in 70, where he talked about effectively controlling humanity via a scientific control grid. And, you know, having the biotech foods is, is very much part of that scientific control grid. And once these players had um, uh, come across to the United States, what we see is a lot of national socialist type philosophy creeping in to the U.S. philosophy. Eisenhower, of course, uh, warned very directly about uh, the risk of the uh, industrial military complex effectively taking a lead role in, in U.S. society in his final speech before he handed over the presidency to, uh, to JFK. In that speech, very famous speech, very provocative speech, he was essentially talking about the military in many parts of that. But was he also in that speech alluding to this issue, this platform that we're talking about in the pharmaceutical area that he could also predict even at that stage back in the early 60s, I believe? Actually, I don't think he was talking about the military um, because obviously Eisenhower was a military man himself. I mean, he was a, he was a, a U.S. Uh, military hero. I think he was actually talking about the creeping fascism 
that he perceived within the U.S. government. And, and of course, the definition of fascism is very simply corporate controlled government. When I chart the 50s, 60s, 70s and 80s, etc., always talk about the 1950s beyond being a decade of fear because of the Cold War. It was where consumerism began. And I was in conversation with John Perkins recently who said that predatory greed essentially began in the 1970s. But necessarily what you are saying is that even back in the early 60s, they were already seeing the emerging predatory greed and the rise of all of these industries, including the pharmaceutical industry. Was that becoming apparent by events such as the polio outbreak and what that led to? They were obviously very perceptive even in the early 60s. Well, I think the problem was that uh, certain individuals like Eisenhower, who, in, in my opinion, was a good man, as was JFK, I don't think these guys had any real knowledge of who was pulling the power strings until they got into positions, obviously, of apparent leadership. Uh, and then it, it, they began to realize, actually, how little autonomy they, they truly had. And obviously, there were some you know, very serious players behind the scenes. I'm trying to think, who was the president who said, you know, people, oh, it was Woodrow Wilson. You know, there's obviously a power that, uh, you know, people dare not speak except uh, under their breath. It was J.F. Kennedy who was very prominent in his famous speech in, in talking about that. And I don't know whether he was talking about that because of the, uh, the speeches made by Fagan back then about the Illuminati. But it was definitely J.F. Kennedy who was alluding to the fact that the country perhaps and the world was not controlled by the political platforms that we would think, but by other platforms behind it that were really in control, even back in those decades. Well, exactly, which is why he wanted to uh, shut down the Federal Reserve and you know, print, um, print his own money, as it were. Um, and that's probably one of the primary reasons that he was assassinated. But you're absolutely, absolutely on the money here. And I, I mean, obviously, it, it goes way beyond just the biotech and the pharmaceutical industry. With the powers behind... I.G. Farben, who had effectively been brought over to the U.S., and, and these were the guys who were effectively the architects of establishing the Codex Alimentarius Commission in 1962. Now, for certainly for 30-odd years, nobody had heard of the Codex Alimentarius Commission. I mean, it was just one of these very remote, very obscure government NGOs, non-governmental organizations, working as part of the World Trade and World Health Organization, and nobody really saw any significant impact. But by the early 90s, people in the U.S. were starting to realize that uh, there was an agenda. Now, you know, here we are some um, 16 years on, and, and so probably um, anybody under the age of uh, 30 is going to have sort of little recall of what I talk about here. But there was a mass realization in the States that there was an agenda here to effectively outlaw all natural vitamins and health supplement products, which was actually stretching over into the area of organic foods. And there was a, a company in the U.S. called the, uh, you remind me, I'm, I'm slipping a bit, it's a while since I lived in the U.S. Is it Whole Foods? The Whole Foods? 
The whole food I believe chain. so. I believe yep. so, yes. Anyway, this, this company actually managed to mobilize people right throughout the United States. There were mass protests. They had people phoning their representatives and their senators and letting it be known that if they supported this effort to effectively outlaw these natural uh, supplements, these vitamins and, um, and potentially organic foods, then they wouldn't get re-elected. And there was a realization that this movement had some serious legs. And so a piece of legislation was introduced in 1994, called, which is known as the Deshay, which is the Dietary Supplement Health Education Act. And, and what this did, this effectively put a ring fence around the natural uh, supplements and organic farming and everything else in the U.S. So what happened then was the Codex Alimentarius Commission effectively turned their attention to Europe. So what's been going on in Europe has perhaps been a little bit more high profile. But meanwhile, there's also been a lot of efforts in the U.S., of course, particularly through buying up of uh, family farms and establishing these, um, fa this factory farming industry with the increasing amount of acreage of GM foods. I mean, in 1980, there wasn't a single acre of GM food being grown anywhere on the planet. So here we are just 30 years later, and approximately 10% of all agricultural land in, on the planet today is growing GM foods. The question with that is, in that 30 years we've seen a massive rise in population. And yet the rationalization, the marketing behind that has been false. It's essentially saying that given the size of the population, given the expansion that it will travel through over the next 10 or 20 years, the only way to support that is by eradicating ancient culture, ancient traditions, ancient agriculture and taking this road of genetically modified crops. Would that be a correct assumption? That's the marketing spiel put out by the biotech industry, but it is a complete crock. I mean, the reality is that the reason that the biotech industry is trying to take uh, such a stranglehold over um, farming across the planet is so that it can actually control it. And, and I mean, we, we can see this. Look, it, it's very clear. Article 81 of the Iraqi constitution was foisted upon the fledgling Iraqi government by Paul Bremner in 2004. And Article 81 specifically prohibits Iraqi farmers from saving their seeds. So here we have an outrageous situation where we have literally the, the cradle of civilization you know, in, the, in the fertile crescent there. The cradle of civilization where husbandry was introduced to humanity. Here we are you know, some five millennia later and these people are told that it is now illegal for them to save their seeds and they are required to purchase their seeds from Monsanto. And this is not the first incidence of this, but now what we have is we effectively have that same legislation being surreptitiously put through the, the statute books in the US 
Now, I mean, there, there does appear to be an increasing realisation of what's going on, and I know that there is an increasing um, effort to try and, uh, and block it, but it's going to need the same mobilisation that whole food stores managed to achieve uh, 16, 17 years ago in bringing about the Deschay legislation, because S510, which is the bill before the Senate right now, would specifically prohibit US citizens from growing and eating their own food. Is that bill, the S510, that I understand has won through initially through the House, actually go as far enough? Because part of my time I live in Los Angeles and I, in my work I come across many different communities and one of them is the permaculture community, building allotments that we call in the UK uh, over here vegetable patches, essentially. Uh, but is this far-reaching enough, this bill, where not only is it going to eliminate farmers, uh, whether they're on the prairie or in the deep south from growing traditional crops, but also actually make it illegal for people to have vegetable gardens in their backyard? Is, is it this severe? Yes, in a nutshell, absolutely it is. And, it's, and people, I mean, I know people listening to this going, will be going, oh, that's ridiculous. That can never happen. Listen, it, it's, it's all going to be done under the auspices of food safety. I mean, they won't specifically make a law that says you can't grow food. It doesn't work like that. They're far more subtle. What they do is they introduce legislation that says that uh, basically anybody who consumes food that hasn't been provided from an approved source, anybody who basically gets sick from that food, then obviously they can sue the person that uh, provided that food. And to ensure that nobody ever gets sick, but then what they do is they say, well, okay, basically what we're going to put in place is licensing requirements so that every facility, whether it's a vegetable patch or whether it's the prairie, every facility has to be regularly inspected and, and hold a current license. And basically, the individuals and the companies would be expected to pay for that approval process. So to get a license, if you like, to grow a few carrots and a few potatoes and a few uh, runner beans in your backyard, um, you know, might cost you $1,000. And, and of course, the vast majority of people say, what? Of course, I'm not going to pay $1,000. So they'll automatically default back to the system. Exactly. What is the status in the European compared to the United States in this regard? The European fiscal system, it seems to me, upon research, is certainly being pushed to its absolute nth degree. I would imagine, and I've talked about this and written about this, with the conclusions that our traditional financial platforms that we see today are no longer going to sustain themselves. Dreadful prediction, but in my world of looking back at the implosion of civilizations and what we have to go through, it may be a good chaos. The European Union is very close, clearly, to uh, social upheaval. How far ahead is it in the regard of modified crops in people being completely unaware of this situation as they are in the state? Well, there's some areas where um, the awareness in the U.S. is greater than in, uh, in Europe and vice versa. I mean, I'll give you a classic example. Growth hormone contaminated beef. 
which is another Monsanto product. The product is called Posilac, and it was introduced into U.S. farming. Supposedly, as you can perhaps gather from the name, Posilac, it enhances the, the lactation process of the dairy cattle. It's a horrendous drug. And, and I would encourage your listeners, although not over breakfast, to go Google uh, Monsanto and Posilac and take a look at the images and the deformity of the, uh, of, of the cows. Um, I mean, it, it's uh, making the life of the cows absolutely unbearable. And fortunately, fortunately, there are a number of farmers that still you know, have some empathy with their livestock and have basically refused to use it and have come under phenomenal pressure from Monsanto because obviously they entered into a contract that they would buy this product from Monsanto for X number of years. But what the farmers have now started to realize is that whilst it does increase the productivity of a cow in the short term, not only does it have a, a negative impact on their life, if you like, on the, um, but it also shortens their life. Now, the other spin-off of uh, Posilac was it was discovered that it accelerated the growth in the beef herd. So although it was designed to increase milk productivity, it had this effect of enhancing the, the growth of the beef. It doesn't stop in the cattle. You know, one might argue that if there was an appropriate amount of effort put into the research, it might go a long way to explain obesity amongst people, particularly, for example, people in Texas, where I lived for four years. It's no wonder that you've got stores like Big and Tall, because you know, people are eating beef. It's part of the national diet in, uh, in Texas. And, and this, this, there's a very good possibility that uh, you know, this growth hormone is actually obviously transferred to people uh, through their diet. In Europe, there is a realization, a very wide realization, that growth hormone contaminated beef is not healthy for the people. And the European Parliament know very well that there's absolutely no way that the people in Europe would tolerate uh, growth hormone contaminated beef coming into the food chain. So what happens is that, and, and people in Europe aren't aware of this, by the way, but what happens is that the European Parliament pays a fine to the World Trade Organization of 150 million euros a year because Europe refuses to import growth hormone contaminated beef, which the World Trade and the World Health Organization both say is safe. This raises two comments. First of all, program with Lady Tracy Worcester, who created the documentary on pig farming and attempted with this documentary to screen it, had great difficulties, had Smithfield Foods on her back for that. And consequently, as much as Lady Tracy did and still does take this film to local communities in the UK, it never reached a major distribution level. I take out of this, Ian, is whilst I understand the dangers of this bill, what it does to the animals and following your narrative there that the conditions that it's going to create for people, of course, who will then become ever more reliant upon the pharmaceutical industry, is that this is a trend uh, that's being created. There are countries around the world, third world countries, uh, including Haiti, where USAID and other organizations are uh, flying in genetically modified seeds yes. that only last one season. And so 
what it does is immeasurable damage and I'm not sure that they realize that not only does it damage the soil, damage Mother Earth, damage the land, but it also damages people and future generations and the ability of children to be able to follow on in the traditional cultures. And so this seems to be the general policy, the general trend of this in listening to you is that it is a creation of a short-term vehicle across the board. Short-term crops that demands that communities and cultures have to return very frequently to rebuy those crops, to refeed again. And there are so many other areas of life that that is occurring. And with the food bill, that's what will occur there, that same sort of paradigm where people, in order to create any sort of sustainability for themselves, will be having to almost report back to the government, as you do with code if you're building a shed, and receive some sort of acknowledgement in exchange for a fee. This, in great seriousness now, this is very alarming, is it not? And yet, I'm not sure that the public domain, the citizens either in Europe or in the United States or anywhere really is aware of this and that's a frightening concept in itself well let, let me uh, there's um, there's three while you were talking there I just uh, thought of three examples I want to share and, and as always I don't expect anybody to take anything I say at face value people don't need to because they can go away and research this for themselves so three points to raise that I think uh, encapsulate everything that we're discussing here I would encourage people to go take a look at the situation of the BT cotton farmers in India. This is a Monsanto product. It's been reported, it's certainly in the mainstream media in the, in the UK, on two or three occasions over the last uh, couple of years or so. What you have in, in India is you literally have thousands of farmers committing suicide. Now, this is no exaggeration. And in fact, I, I use the phrase thousands of farmers and I've been accused of undercalling it because there are other researchers who will say it's tens of thousands of farmers who have committed suicide because of the failure of their Monsanto GM cotton crops. Are you also saying, therefore, that that is occurring on a corporate scale and that is highly possible on a individual scale in neighborhoods in communities that this is what will occur if these types of food bills go through absolutely absolutely because what you've got is uh, f farmers you know once they commit to buying the monsanto seeds and and mean basically once they've turned their land over to gm crops i mean it's not really feasible to go straight back to uh, an organic crop so they are reliant on the marketing blurb of Monsanto yielding what they say it's going to yield because Monsanto are charging anything up to 10 times what it would cost the farmer for his uh, normal seeds and and so they're having to borrow large sums of money to be able to buy the seeds in the first place and of course they're reliant on getting a good crop to be able to one make a living and two pay back the loan that many of them have had to take out to buy the seeds and then three have enough money to buy the seeds for the coming year and and what's happening is they're just getting themselves deeper and deeper into debt with no possibility of of any recovery and so they're just committing suicide rather than pass the burden of debt over to the next generation. 
And they said this is very, very well documented on the web, but of course it's not being reported by the mainstream. And Monsanto refused to acknowledge that there's any relationship whatsoever between the suicides and the failure of their crops. Now, so that's, that's issue one. Point two, there's a couple of people I really want to mention and I would encourage people to research for themselves. With regard GM seeds, there was a, a research scientist by the name of Arpad Putsai, Dr. Arpad Putsai. And he'd been working at a research institute called the Rowett Institute in, um, in Scotland. He'd been there for 30 years and he was regarded as one of the world's leading researchers in GM foods. And certainly up until the mid-90s, he was an advocate of GM and he bought into the line that GM foods were potentially the, the savior of the planet and you know we could continue to uh, support um, a growing population, not that we're doing it anyway, but continue to support a growing population through introducing GM foods. Then in the late 90s, as his research became more intense, he realized the dangers of GM foods. And again, this is very well documented, but what he established beyond any doubt was that GM foods had a debilitating effect, particularly on the stomach linings of um, young rats. And, and of course, he extrapolated that. And basically, he stated, and he um, stated this in a documentary that was broadcast by the BBC in October 1998. And in that documentary, he said that despite the fact he had been an advocate, of GM foods. He no longer uh, held that position and he presented his research to show that GM foods were potentially the greatest danger to humanity and that the, the GM agenda needed to be halted at the earliest possible opportunity. What happened is that after the day after the documentary was broadcast, Monsanto called Bill Clinton, Bill Clinton called Tony Blair, Tony Blair called the head of the Rowett Institute and that same day, Arpad Putsai was fired. I would encourage people to take a look at the uh, activities of Percy Schmeiser because Percy Schmeiser is a Canadian farmer that took on Monsanto because Monsanto tried to sue Percy Schmeiser for illegally growing Monsanto crops when the, when the seeds had actually blown onto his land. And Monsanto have had a deliberate strategy of planting GM seeds all the way down the west coast of the U.S. and in the lee of the Rockies, knowing that, of course, the prevailing westerly winds would blow the seeds onto other farmers' lands. And Percy Schmeiser was just such a victim, and they tried to sue him. In fact, they tried to break him, but they didn't reckon on the resilience of Percy. And if eventually, although they tried to bankrupt him, eventually, because Percy was going to take it all the way to court, they withdrew the case against him. But nonetheless, of course, it had cost him hundreds of thousands of dollars. As we continue these series of programs, what we're trying to do is, as a ever-emerging and dynamic conscious community builds throughout the world, and opposite that we do have the establishment, would you agree with me that we have to find a compassion in bringing all of these think tanks, communities, parties together and illuminating and inspiring people to educate themselves and that is certainly what this program is about it's fair and balanced so that people can go away and have the right to educate themselves about these 
paradigms that are taking place. How in your mind is the best way moving forward, given that we are definitely in an accelerated state in this world with the internet and with information that is running rampant? How can we inspire people to see these problems and to take action, not only on an individual level, but on a corporate level? Well, obviously, it starts at the individual level. I mean, until such time as you're addressing the issues at an individual level, you're not going to break it down at the corporate level. I mean, John Braithwaite wrote an absolutely outstanding book, ironically, in 1984, called Corporate Crime in the Pharmaceutical Industry. And, And he makes the same observations as William Engdahl does in his book, Seeds of Destruction. And basically, these guys make the observation that when they sit down with senior executives of pharmaceutical companies or biotech companies and they're sitting down with them in a sort of social environment they give the impression of being wonderful guys but when they get around the boardroom table they become socio-psychopaths very much the same as lobbyists uh, in capitol hill i know a couple of wonderful photographer political photographers from the washington post who say that in the social setting they all get on like houses on fire when they go into the house they rant at each other as if they've never met each other before it's theater for public consumption when we know obviously that and they know that the outcome is already predetermined the fastest way that people can impact on the corporate world is with their wallets and and one of the reasons that the pharmaceutical and the biotech industries are becoming increasingly aggressive is because they are very aware that more and more people are actually seeking out organic foods and are moving away from allopathic medicines and seeking out natural remedies and natural healthcare products because natural healthcare is is obviously about prevention rather than about cure and and that's why the pharmaceutical industry doesn't like it because you know they don't want people preventing themselves from getting sick because they only start to make money when people actually are sick and and the pharmaceutical industry has a very very simplistic business model And that is that every human life form from the moment of conception to the moment of death is a potential revenue stream. And the faster that they can get their hooks into into that individual, the better they like it. Which is why we're finding that there's an increasing number of young people being medicated with the likes of Ritalin in their teens. And of course, Ritalin is just the is the nursery, the kindergarten for drugs like Prozac. So as much as we talk about the conditioning that we and our parents and our ancestors before that were conditioned in many areas of life, this conditioning is really a different animal at this stage. Without any shadow of doubt, it's a very aggressive conditioning. It does not have humanity's best interests at heart by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, quite the, quite the opposite. Humanity has become a, a commodity. It's even demonstrated in, in corporate jargon when we, we use phrases like human resources. How more blatant can it be than stating that the people who work in your organization are nothing more than a human resource? And at least a few years ago, it was called personnel, which gave it a degree of humanity. But, you know, the, the, re- the reality is that the only way in which we can break through this is for people to come to a realization at an individual level. And, and David, as I know you're well aware, is that once people realize the, the benefits of, one, a healthy diet, and, and two, using natural health care products as prevention, then there's no going back. Because once people realize and appreciate the benefits to their well-being, then 
that from that point forward, they are converts. Ian Crane, it's been a pleasure as ever talking to you again today, and I think that everything that we have talked to suggests the movement back to the natural rhythms of the Earth, Mother Earth, and I'm sure that we will certainly head in that direction. It's been a great pleasure again, Ian. I do thank you for joining me. Thanks very much, David. Look forward to talking to you again. And to our listeners today, I do hope that you have enjoyed this program as much as I have. You can gain information on this and any other program in the series at davidgibbons.org. Meanwhile, wherever you are in this world, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. David Gibbons in discussion welcomes listeners' comments and viewpoints at its blog at davidgibbons.org. This programming is supported by organizations and firms in the private and public sectors. In Discussion with David Gibbons is sponsored in part by Bowman Global Change. Specializing in helping companies reduce their carbon emissions, Bowman Global Change applies real science to real business practices to produce results. From designing green programs to one-on-one training to helping set up green action teams in your business, Bowman Global Change translates complex science in practical ways that everyone can understand and use. For more information or to discover how Bowman Global Change can help your organization, visit bowmanglobalchange.com. Dot com.